and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Um, this is an incredible portion of Scripture. And today I want to look at it and just pick out a couple things. You know, I think when you make your life all about Christ, when you come to him as your Lord and Savior, your life changed, it's transformed, your, your life message, your life mission, your purpose, everything focuses on your relationship with Christ. And he really becomes the very center of our lives at that point in time. He becomes the center of what we think, about what we do, about what we say. And when you discover that he is really the one who makes worth living, it's only natural to want to share that message of the gospel with others. And so today we're going to look a little bit about how to do that. This is not an evangelism class. Uh, Dave Bowen's going to take care of that down the road to teach us how to effectively share our faith. But today I just want to share a couple points with us, how we can share our faith and how we talk about our faith with those around us. Um, I was reading a, a book on the life of William Carey, and William Carey was a poor English shoemaker who was born back in 1761. And after his conversion at the age of 18, he began preaching in some small Baptist churches over there, chapels, uh, supporting himself by his uh, shoemaking trade. He once read a book of Captain Cook's Voyages. And when he read that book, he got interested in foreign missions. And as he continued to study the Bible, he became convinced that the central responsibility of the church should be foreign missions. It's kind of ironic. That's one of the reasons why this church was founded originally, was to support missionaries to go into other parts of the world to share the gospel of Christ. Um, now, today, that doesn't seem like a radical thing. But back in Carey's day, it was really revolutionary. Because a lot of people don't understand the theological climate in which Carey became a Christian and was uh, growing in his faith. It was really what we would call today in theological terms a hyper-Calvinistic view of the Great Commission. And what that means is that, well, the Great Commission was only given to the apostles. And we're not responsible to share. That's God's job. That's what we'd call a hyper-Calvinistic view. And they really believed that this great commission had been fulfilled in their time, through, before their time, through the apostles. So the last part of Matthew there, when it says, go into all the world, well, they just, these theological minds that held this view said, well, that doesn't apply to us. That was already done by the apostles. And they believed that the heathen had rejected the gospel, and so they would have to await their fate on judgment day. But Carey, who, by the way, was a Calvinist, he wasn't a hyper-Calvinist, but he was a Calvinist, he dared to ask whether Jesus' command to make disciples of all the nations was not obligatory to all Christians. And the theologians in his day really came unglued when he began to explore this. An old minister accused him of being a miserable enthusiast for the gospel. When he shared his ideas at a ministering gathering one time with a bunch of other pastors, one pastor retorted, young man, you just sit down. <laughs> they had no respect for Kerry whatsoever. He went on, he said, when God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do, do it without your aid or mine. See, that's what we call a hyper-Calvinistic view concerning evangelism. Well, Kerry actually proposed going himself to India as a missionary. And his father, his own father, thought he was mad, thought he was nuts, thought he lost his cookies. But William Carey went to India anywhere, anyway, and he labored there for some 40 years. That's amazing. He supervised and he edited translations of the Bible, listen to this, into at least 36 languages. I mean, I mean, if I said, how many here know five languages, there'd probably not be a whole lot of hands. 36 languages. He published grammars. He published dictionaries. He labored to, to change the social climate over there to abolish 
widow burning to abolish infanticide that was going on. He studied even botany so that he could help the Indian people know how to grow agricultural uh, goods so that they could improve their living. In a sermon that he preached before he actually left England, Carey uttered these now famous words, this quote that you all probably are very familiar with, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. He's often called the father of modern missions. And so when we stop and we look at this section of Acts, we see here Philip, the Lord took Philip is, is having Philip take the, the gospel into the Samaritan territory. And God blessed his efforts as many came to faith in Christ and were baptized. Now, we're not sure here of the time frame, but it would seem that right in the middle of this revival in Samaria, the Lord sent an angel to Philip to leave that region. In other words, I don't want you to stay there where all this stuff's going on. I want you to go somewhere else. And he was to travel to this deserted road out in the middle of nowhere that led from Jerusalem south to Gaza. And so God arranged this meeting here between, as we read, Philip and this man, this Ethiopian eunuch who was traveling home after worshiping in Jerusalem. And God opened this man's heart and Philip led the man to faith in Christ. Um, Now, in biblical times, Ethiopia referred to the region south of Aswan, Egypt, but north of uh, uh, Sudan. And so it's probably not the same Ethiopia we're thinking of today. And so this man was probably most likely Sudanese. He was definitely dark-skinned. We we know him probably, he was physically either a, a eunuch, physically, or that was his title. Because some people had titles of eunuch in in this high-ranking court in which he served. And so we're not sure. The Bible doesn't really tell us that. He was equivalent, you might say, to the the treasurer secretary under a queen or something like that. And it tells us here, this was not her name, Candace. This was a title. Um, That's not the lady's name. Kind of like Pharaoh or Caesar. It was just simply a title. And the story shows us as William's Carey story also shows us, that God is sovereign in evangelism. He's sovereign in evangelism. But also that his people must be obedient to the command to evangelize. And so today I want to look at God evangelizes the world through obedient Christians who explain the gospel to seeking souls. This is how God works. He works through the local church. He works through uh, evangelism uh, organizations. I remember when I first became a believer, I received a lot of interesting teachings about the Bible and how to study the Bible and all those things were great. And I remember taking an evangelism class, and maybe some of you have taken this class, um, Evangelism Explosion. And a lot of the stuff that was taught in the class was pretty much good, but I now I realize the whole, the whole push of the class was to kind of go out and you, you, you make people pray this certain prayer. And, um, you know, if you can do that, then you've kind of closed the deal and you begin to realize that, uh, wow, this, this is pretty good. Um, I remember practicing these, these principles of evangelism on a local campus down at San Diego State University. Our school would go over there and evangelize on the, the quad out there. And we would walk up to people and we would start a uh, dialogue with them. We'd start a conversation with them. And usually it would start with, you know, if you died today, do you think you'd go to heaven? And, and the question would go on. But we were already went through this class of training that gave us all the answers to all the questions that these people would probably ever ask. And you were trained to kind of dismiss their questions and kind of stick to the gospel presentation. And, you know, you just need to get them to the point of admitting they're a sinner and you need them to pray this prayer. And if they pray the sinner's prayer, then, you know, you can boldly, boldly uh, pronounce to them that they're a believer and you pray for them and you go to the next person. Um, and I think that, that a lot of times when that, that approach is taken... Okay, I, I have no doubt in my mind some of these people that prayed this prayer with me were not converted. They were simply praying a prayer with me to get me out of their face. 
Okay, to say, okay, great, whatever, just, yeah, okay, amen, yeah, great, next, you know. <clears throat> and they were, they were happy to do that. But they weren't converted. And even though, in my limited understanding of, of what it meant to be a believer at that time and, and, and things like that, I, I thought, well, they must be, and I'm just going to the next person. And I remember after those evangelism um, outings that we would go to, we'd all come back to the college and we'd, we'd swap war stories, you know. Well, how many did you get saved? How many got saved with you? Oh, you know, I got 10, 10, 10 prayed the prayer. Wow, you know, I had 20. Wow, really? That's cool. And, you know, and you swap stories. And you'd feel pretty good about yourself that you took an afternoon and you went out and you led people through this prayer. But in fact, you know what? It's such an important decision as far as salvation goes. I mean, such an important decision. I think it deserves the right to be able to make that decision without any kind of manipulative techniques involved or high pressure. And that class taught you a lot of manipulative techniques and very high pressure. Um, You know, think about when you go to buy a car. Um, You know, when you walk in there and the salesman's all over you and, you know... You need time to think about it, but they can't give you the time because the manager's at lunch, and boy, you know, you can only get this deal while the manager's gone, and, you know, they're trying to push you. You know, here are the keys. Just take this pen and put your pen name here, and you got this car. You can drive it away right now. And a lot of times in that pressure scenario, what ends up happening is people make a decision that down the road they regret because maybe they didn't do the research on the car that they're buying. Maybe they just felt pressured and maybe you know they didn't realize they couldn't make the payments or whatever it might be. And see, that goes without saying with a car salesman. I mean, think about it when you're talking about someone about their eternal soul. It's far more important than that. And so for this reason, people need to make the decision to follow Christ, not on a whim, not on, you know, in the midst of a bunch of emotional mumbo jumbo, but having counted the cost, as we've seen in the New Testament, of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Uh, I mean, when we marry, when people are married, when they're brought together in, in marriage, in that, in that ceremony, you know, they don't just trot down the aisle and you say, yeah, okay, now you're man and wife, go, go for it. You know, you, know, you don't say that. No, there, there's, there's kind of a, a, a solemn ceremony. You know, you've probably heard it. Some, some pastors will say something like this, dearly beloved, we're gathered together here in the sight of God and in the face of this company to join this man to this woman in holy matrimony, which is an honorable estate instituted by God, signifying onto us the mystical union that is between Christ and his church, which holy estate Christ adorned with his presence in the first miracle that he performed in the Canaan, Cana of Galilee, and is commanded of St. Paul to be honored among all men. And therefore, and we kind of emphasize this part, is not by any to be entered in ill-advisedly or lightly, but reverently, discreetly, advisedly, soberly, and in the fear of God. See, that's how you enter, you should enter, into a new marriage relationship. There's a lot of counsel that's involved. There's time spent going over biblical principles to hopefully make that marriage successful. Well, think about when we enter into a relationship with Christ, a personal relationship with Christ. We need to consider that cost. We need to stop and we need to realize, okay, what's involved here? It's not just about praying some prayer. There's a lot more to it than that. And so we've been looking at these principles for leaving our mark here in the world. And, and we're, we're told here that this, this apostle Philip encounters this Ethiopian, Ethiopian and he shares the gospel with him. Okay. Um, now this man had gone to Jerusalem and now he was on his way home. Um, he obviously was not Jewish. He was probably what they called a, a, a God-fearer, someone who wasn't Jewish but believed in the one God and worshipped him. But he didn't necessarily follow all the Old Testament regulations like some of the Jews did. And so Philip saw this man reading from the book of Isaiah, and so he struck up this conversation with him. Um, he answered his questions, talked to him about what he was reading, 
in verse 35, it says, Then Philip began with that very scripture and told him the what? The good news about Jesus. The first thing we have to see here is that God sovereignly takes the initiative in the salvation of souls. That God sovereignly takes the initiative in the salvation of souls. God's sovereignty is all over this story. Um, I mean, think about it. He sent the angel to tell Philip to go to a particular remote place. He arranged for Philip and this man's paths to cross out in the middle of nowhere. He, promote, he, he prompted Philip in verse uh, 29 to go up to the man's chariot. I mean, that's kind of a dangerous thing. You don't approach some, some guy's chariot out in the middle of nowhere. You might end up getting hurt. And at that very moment, God had providentially arranged for that man to be reading aloud. And, and what people don't realize is most people in the ancient world would read aloud from the book of Isaiah. And not just any part of Isaiah, but from Isaiah 53. I mean, you couldn't pick a better passage to share the gospel from the Old Testament. And at that moment, after the man had trusted in Christ, they came upon some water. And there the man was baptized. Um, And after that, Philip was snatched away, it says, some commentators say, well, that wasn't a miracle. You know, he just kind of disappeared. <laughs> what do you mean? He's out in the middle of nowhere. What do you mean he disappeared? He just kind of lollygogged off into the desert? I mean, what are you talking about here? No, that word snatched is the same word used to describe the church being caught up to be with the Lord in First Thessalonians 4.17. So God was sovereign from the beginning of the situation all the way to the end, from getting Philip to go to this Ethiopian man and taking him away. And as the scripture proclaimed here, it is God who sovereignly works to save his elect. Now, I want you to notice two things here. First of all, God is not always efficient as we would want him to be. God is not always efficient as we would want him to be. Now, think about it. This Ethiopian had just made a thousand-mile journey to Jerusalem. After making this long journey... And considering what he probably, that, he, that he probably stayed there in Jerusalem for a period of time. I mean, did you ever ask the question, why didn't the Lord just direct one of the apostles who were already in Jerusalem to share the gospel with him while he was there? I mean, that kind of makes sense, right? Save on the gas mileage. I mean, he could have led the man to Christ and given him a crash course in discipleship before he even left. Meanwhile, Philip could have continued his fruitful ministry in Samaria. Later, it tells us that that Philip settles in Caesarea where a centurion needed to hear the gospel. But rather than send Philip, who was there, who does God send? Peter, who was not there. See, sometimes God's ways are not as efficient as maybe we would like them to be. And we can't always have this view of world missions as something being efficient, as some American business enterprise. Because God's ways are not our ways. Sometimes he does things that seem to us, frankly, a waste of time, a waste of money, a waste of personnel. But our job is not to question the Lord, but to simply be obedient. I want to tell you another story about William Carey. I mean, he must have wrestled with God's inefficiency. When, listen to this, after 19 years of labor, after 19 years of working, a warehouse destroyed 10 complete Bible translations. I mean, it destroyed his massive polyglot dictionary, two grammar books that he had written. Now, now, remember, I mean, they didn't have a PC or a Mac and, you know, just type it up and save the file. I mean, it wasn't like that back then. All these things had to be tediously shaped fonts laid out in hand. But God used the tragedy to spread the word about this mission that Carrie was on. And in two months, enough gifts had poured in to the mission to pay for the huge losses that they took. 
Carrie accepted the tragedy as a judgment from the Lord and began all over again with even greater zeal. I mean, 19 years of work just going up in flames. You say, why did God allow that to happen? That doesn't seem very efficient. I don't know. Sometimes God has us go to places or do things that, that don't necessarily seem very efficient in our mind. But remember, God's ways are not our ways. Secondly, I want you to note here that God's target is the world. It is the world. Foreign missions were not something that the church or some brilliant strategist just kind of cooked up. It's God's program. He commanded Philip to evangelize this Gentile man from Ethiopia. Someone has observed that in Acts 8, we see the conversion of the son of Ham. In Acts 9, the son of of, of Shem, Paul. And in, in Acts 10, the son of Japheth, the Roman centurion. They represent the three divisions of humanity after the flood. Kind of an interesting insight. But Luke here is showing us the gospel going out to all these nations. Just as Jesus had commanded. In Revelation 5.9, John sees before the throne the four living creatures and the 24 elders. And they're singing this. Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. See, until all whom Jesus purchased with his blood are brought to salvation, we must, as Paul put it, do all things for the sake of those who are chosen so that they also may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus, with, and with it eternal glory. That's 2 Timothy 2.10. So God uses obedient Christians to explain the gospel from his word to those who are seeking it. Um, even though God is sovereign in all these things, he still uses people to bring people to salvation. Um, he, he does not usually do it apart from his chosen people being obedient. And so here is Philip in the midst of this exciting revival in, in, in Jerusalem there in Samaria. And an angel tells him to go to this deserted stretch of road where no one lived. I mean, think about it. Just think about it. I mean, you, you would have to struggle with that. I mean... I think I would probably say, well, why doesn't the angel go himself? I mean, I'm sure he can communicate whatever needs to be communicated to this guy out there in the middle of nowhere. What about all these apostles sitting around here in Jerusalem? They're not as busy as I am. Besides, they're closer. Send one of them. Or I'll go, Lord, but you know what? There's a lot going on here with, with my ministry and everything. You know, I gotta, you know, after things quiet down, after all these people get saved, then I'll go. But as far as we know, Philip is not recorded as raising any objections whatsoever. The, the angel simply said, arise and go. And the next verse, verse 27, what's it say? He arose and went. I mean, talk about obedience. And it says that when he, when he had, had, had got there, Seen by the word behold there, he may have been a bit surprised. Um, What was he surprised about? What in the world is this Ethiopian official and his entire entourage here doing out here in the midst of nowhere on this forsaken road? See, the spirit prompted Philip to go up and to join himself to this chariot. It would have been traveling no likely at a very slow pace. So Philip easily could catch up to it. And when he did, he actually heard this man reading. And to his amazement, Philip recognized it as Isaiah 53, verses 7 to 8. And the story says, well, Philip went up and said, do you understand what you're reading? The eunuch simply replied, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to go up and join him. His question was not about the interpretation of words, although there are a bit difficult to interpret at times. A text here is speaking about a man who was treated unjustly. And so his question was this, 
Of whom does this prophet say this? Of himself or someone else? Now you have to understand, contemporary Jewish interpretation was divided about this matter. Some said it referred to the nation. Some that Isaiah was speaking of himself. Some said it referred to the Messiah. But Philip had no doubt in verse 35, beginning from this this scripture, it says he preached Jesus to him. He preached Jesus to him. And just as he would have heard elsewhere, that's, that's what we need to do. He's, he, just prior to this, a eunuch would have been reading, all of us have gone, uh, like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. And so what does Philip do? He jumps right in and he begins to explain the gospel. Jesus Christ is born to bear God's wrath for our sins on the cross. And I'm sure Philip went into other scriptures as well. We're not really told what he said here necessarily, just that he began to preach Jesus to him. Whatever scriptures he must have used, Philip somehow communicated to this man about Jesus Christ, about Jesus Christ being crucified, about Jesus Christ being risen, about Jesus Christ ascending as the only Savior from God's righteous judgment. And he also must have explained at some point that we we have to put our trust in Jesus personally as our sin bearer. And so the eunuch, who was already prepared by God, responded in faith. See, I think it's really important for every Christian here to understand that we should be able to do what Philip did right here in this text. That if need be, we should, starting with any scripture or any spiritual topic whatsoever, we should be able to somehow turn that conversation to Jesus and be able to preach to them about Christ. If a person brings up evolution, you know, you can, you can begin to talk about Christ being the creator. I mean, you, know, you, can, you can turn Christ, any conversation to Christ if you really think about it. I mean, it, it's so very important that we don't get sidetracked, that we keep the focus, the emphasis on, on Jesus. And that's really what he does here. And you see here that God sovereignly uses his word to penetrate the hearts and minds of sinners. And he wants obedient Christians to explain the gospel to seeking souls. You see here where the Spirit says, go to that chariot and stay near it. Get up there and see what's going on, Philip. Verse 30 says, Philip ran up to the chariot, totally obedient, totally responding to the Holy Spirit's prompting here. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't always run when the Spirit prompts me to do something. Sometimes I pause. Sometimes I hesitate. Sometimes I'm saying, really, God? You want me to do what? I remember when we met individual for for dinner to, to talk about sanctity of marriage and things like that, individual from homosexual background. Met him in the parking lot. And you know me, I'm not very, I don't display affection very much. I'm not really much a hugging kind of a person. And I saw this individual get out of his car and started walking over toward the restaurant where Ambika was already inside waiting at the table. And I called out his name, and we met, and I took his hand. I shook his hand, and he had all these papers with him. Sure, he was ready to attack. <laughs> and uh, he disagreed with me on the sanctity of marriage, and it should be between a man and a woman, and he was from a homosexual background, so he was there to argue his point. And as I shook his hand... I just felt a prompting, and I can say it's only from the Lord because it wouldn't have come from me. Trust me. You need to give this man a hug. And I remember hesitating for a second, going, (laughs) and I thought, you know what? I don't know what's going to happen. I'm just going to do it. And I went to hug this poor guy, and he pulled back, and he was like, whoa, whoa. I'm like, oh, I was just going to give you a hug. Oh, 
oh, okay, okay. You know, he didn't know what was going on. For the rest of the night, he was off his game. He didn't know what was coming next. And frankly, neither did I. But see, sometimes the Lord prompts us. The Lord, the Lord will, will say, you know, you need to speak to this person. You need to, you need, I'm not saying some audible voice, but it's this inner, inner prompting of the Holy Spirit. And we need to be sensitive to that. And that's exactly what Philip was doing here. And the second thing we see here is that he looked for this open door. And this is something we need to practice. Philip heard the man reading the Old Testament, and Philip asked him, well, do you understand what you're reading? The man said that he didn't because he had no one to explain him. Well, guess what? It says that he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Well, you know, in my mind, I, you know what I call that? I call that an open door. Okay, you're not going to get any more open door than that. You know, you don't need to pray. You don't need to stop and say, well, maybe I need to brush. No, God is opening a door for you to share the gospel with somebody. You need to walk through that door. Now, there are other times when maybe that door gets slammed right in your face. I remember one time we were traveling back from, I was traveling back from, from uh, I think it was Florida or Virginia. I don't know. I saw the grandkids and for whatever reason, I was by myself and, and they can be good to stay a little bit longer or something. And I remember I was reading a book on evangelism and I was getting kind of excited and I thought, wow, you know, okay, I'm going on this plane trip and I'm going to really pray that God opens up the door that, you know, whoever's sitting next to me, boy, they're really going to hear it. You know, I'm going to just, you know, I'm going to be like Paul, you know, or Peter or whatever. I mean, I was all excited and I get on the plane and, uh, you know, it's one of those three row deals. I was sitting by the window and this lady sat next to me and I thought, okay, here it goes. You know, so I put my Bible out there, you know, kind of just like, hey, look at me. You know, I'm reading my Bible. You know, you're going to ask me what I'm reading, you know, waiting, nothing happened. And, uh, you know, we, she sat down and I said, oh, you know, where are you from? And she kind of said where she was from. And I'm, I'm kind of praying, okay, Lord, to ask her, you know, well, what do you do? You know, I just, that's usually a question that allows the door to be opened. You know, oh, I'm, you know, I'm in gospel ministry. I'm a pastor of a church. And so oh, what do you do for the, you know, they start asking questions and pretty soon you're sharing the gospel. Well, this lady sat down and she asked me basically, uh, I, I asked her, you know, where she was from or whatever. She never asked me one question. And after about five minutes, it became very clear to me, this woman did not want to talk to me at all. As a matter of fact, she made it very clear because she took her little earbuds and she put them in her head and she put her, you know, after we took off, she put her seat back and, and she just went to sleep. And I'm sitting there the whole time going, okay. God, what did I do wrong here, you know? Sometimes, you know what? It's not in God's plan. It's not in God's purpose. You know, you don't, you know, you don't shake the woman. Hey, I'm here to share the gospel with you, you know? You need to listen up. No, you know? I mean, some people may be obnoxious to, to try to share it with the person on the other side of this person, and, you know, maybe they'll hear it, you know, and, and, and just be disruptive while they're trying to sleep. No. Sometimes, you know what? You just you need to respect that closed door. Maybe the Holy Spirit is still in the process of getting them ready. You know, we don't just have our own plan in this. Sometimes we face a closed door and we have to be understanding of that. Third thing here is we see here that he began where the Ethiopian was. We begin where people are. The Ethiopian was reading from the book of Isaiah. He had questions about the book of Isaiah. So what did Philip do? Did he start talking to him about Ethiopian politics and and cultural values? Or maybe about his views on inerrancy or about anything else? No. He started to answer the individual's questions. He began with that very scripture, it says, and told him the good news about Jesus. I mean, it just so happens that this man's interest at this point in time was in a prophetic message about the Messiah himself. In most biblical messages, most verses, you can point to Christ in one way or another. I remember in that class I took, Evangelism Explosion, they had one section of the class that was called Diversionary Tactics. So they gave you all these tactics. You know, if someone asks you a question, 
You know, you could just say, well, that's an interesting question. Well, let's just put that on the back burner for right now. And, and let me stay on message here because I got to get you to pray this prayer, pal. I mean, that was really what you were saying. Okay. And it was totally wrong, but that's, that's how the class went. See, sometimes it, it, we have to, to realize it, it's not something that one person says to another when they're engaged in this conversation. Okay, it's, it's that you're sharing your faith. It's, it's that it's a conversation with another person. It's not a lecture. You're not pinning them up against the wall and going through five points and closing in prayer and sending them on their way. So the Spirit leads. The Spirit opens the door. We, we, are, we have to be willing to talk to people where they are about the questions that they have. And I think when we do that, we are further used by the Lord. See, when that happens, you can only say this door is, isn't quite open yet, or maybe this door is open, and maybe this person wants to know more. So we need to start where they're at. Don't go there with some preconceived idea as far as, well, I've got to just get through this outline and share these five points, and that's it. The goal in sharing your faith is to try to have a give-and-take conversation with the person. That begins with them where they're at. You want to know where they're at spiritually. And that leads to the next thing here. For you need to tell them about Jesus. Philip began with that very scripture and he told them the good news about Jesus. You know, I, I hear some folks, they'll come and say, oh, it's so exciting. I was on BART the last week and I had an opportunity to share. I'm like, really? What did you share? Well, you know, we started talking about just, um, you know... Uh, Spiritual things, well, like what? So they bring up some weird subject matter. Yeah, so I just had an opportunity to witness. Well, what did you say? Well, uh, you know, uh, they, they, we, we just started, well, we started talking about evolution then, and then, and then we got to the next thing. And, then, and at no point did this person ever stop and tell them about Jesus. That's not sharing your faith, beloved. That's basically just having a dialogue with someone about spiritual things. See, our conversation always needs, always need to go to, to Christ. It always needs to be focused on Christ. It's not about a church. It's not about politics. It's not a bunch of, about a bunch of religious rules or regulations. It's all about Jesus. How he lived, how he died, how he rose again. And all who put their trust in him will experience new life in him and forgiveness of sin because he is the Lord of creation and he wants to be the Lord of your life. Now, maybe you don't know the scriptures well enough to sit down and do a, a whole thing on Isaiah 53. But you know what? You can surely just simply tell them what Christ has done for you if he's done anything. And if he hasn't done anything, you shouldn't be out there sharing anything with anybody. That's part of the problem. If you're talking to others about your Christian faith and your conversion is primarily about what we as a church think about culture and politics, you're missing the point. You know, it's not about that. Our goal is not to get people to accept our family values. Our goal is not to get people to join this party or that party or vote for our candidate. Our goal is simply to show them Christ, to point them to the Savior, to point them to one who can help them out of this lost and dying world in which they find themselves. When you share your faith, you share Jesus. And God uses his word to penetrate the minds and hearts of sinners. That's what he does. People can discern the existence of God and some of his attributes even from creation, Romans 1, when we went through that. But they can only learn how to be saved through the revelation of God's word, which tells us the good news about Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus left us here. Knowledge of the, the one true God may have spread to this man's country about 900 years before, some say, when the queen of Sheba returned from her visit with, with Solomon. There's also a large Jewish colony in Alexandria, hundreds of miles north along the Nile River. The truth about God could have spread south from there. At any rate, this 
Ethiopian eunuch was interested enough in seeking God to make this long and difficult journey to Jerusalem. And I don't know about you, but I'm thinking he must have been a little let down by what he found there. What did he find? He found the Pharisees. He found the Sadducees who controlled a religion that was largely legalistic, that was largely ritualistic, very highly politicized. They did not even know the God whom they professed to follow. And as a Gentile, this Ethiopian probably could not go beyond the court of the Gentiles in the temple. He wasn't allowed. It's hard to imagine that his experience in Jerusalem had met the hunger of his heart that motivated him, obviously, to take this long journey. But at least he came away from there with a scroll of the prophet Isaiah in the Greek Septuagint version. And apparently he was reading it. He was so interested in reading it that he did not even wait to get home. He started reading as he sat in the carriage, plodding along this bumpy desert road toward Egypt. Remember, I took grandkids to the library while I was here and we were driving home and quiet totally quiet in the car. I'm like, what are you guys over-reading, Grandpa? And by the time they got home, they had a couple books read already. It was just crazy. I'm like, man, you guys read pretty quick. You know, they were so focused. They were so excited about the books they got out of the library. See, this is, the, this is what this man's heart was. And once it was explained to him the meaning of this Isaiah, God used three these, these prophetic words about Jesus to bring this man to salvation. And see, that's why I say don't underestimate the power of God's word to bring people to salvation. 1 Peter 1.23 says, For you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. James 1.18 says, In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of what? Truth, it says. 2 Timothy 3.15, that Timothy knew the, straight, the sacred writings which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation. See, this is not just a book full of words. It's God's word, and it's powerful enough to save sinners. I once read an article in one of these uh, uh, martyr uh, magazines, and it, it talked about a Muslim priest who was asked to do a series of studies teachings on um, uh, uh, characters, uh, spiritual characters, such as Abraham, Joseph, David, and even the prophet Jesus, they call him. And when he came to prepare his talk on Jesus, he wanted more background information, so he borrowed a Bible because he was using the Koran. And he began to read the Gospels. And as he began to read the Gospels, he realized that Jesus was more than just this prophet that he had been taught. And his Muslim friends were appalled, and they excommunicated him. He continued to read on, and eventually he trusted the Lord as his own Savior. He went on to be a, a local Christian, and he found a local church. He got baptized, and now he works with this operation mobilization, doing evangelism among his very own people. Why? Because he got a hold of a copy of God's Word. So we should always encourage people to read the Bible, especially the Gospels. You know, if people, if you're sharing your faith with someone, make sure you include some verses. And then say, hey, here's a little Gospel of John or whatever you can give them, and, and give them part of the Word of God. If they don't have a Bible, get them a Bible. And say, I challenge you to start reading it. See, they won't come to faith if they're not reading it. It's, it's just, it's through the Word of God, through the power of His Spirit. And so we should encourage people to read the Bible. Last thing here, quickly, is leave the decision to them. <laughs> you know what? This is their decision. Um, and what they do about their relationship with God is, is their decision to make. You can't make this decision for them as much as we like to. We certainly can't pressure them into making a decision. Oh, they may make a decision because of pressure, but it probably won't be genuine. Um, it's a decision decision, beloved, that each individual has to make for themselves. And if you're here today and you know Christ as your Savior, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There came a point in time in your life where you made this decision to trust Christ as your Lord and Savior. 
And sometimes it's difficult. These are people you love. These are people that are in your life, your family, friends. I mean, you want them to come to Christ. And they seem like sometimes they just don't care. And you know what? Some of them are doing rather well in life. So they don't get the whole, you know, it's going to be so much better better if you just trust Christ. And sometimes we think if somehow we could just believe for them or make this choice for them, but we can't. And so when Philip was talking to the Ethiopian here, he didn't start manipulating the conversation to close the deal so that this man could sign somehow on the dotted line. He simply told him about Jesus. And then it says, suddenly the man responded in verse 37 and 38. As they traveled along the road, there came some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? Indicating that he had come to faith. And he gave orders to stop the chariot. I mean, this Ethiopian owned the decision to the point that he he took himself out of this chariot and wanted to be baptized. And God providentially provided the water out in the middle of nowhere. It wasn't because of Philip's some smooth-talking presentation or slick little track that he had in his hand. It was because Philip answered the Ethiopian's questions and he was ready on his own to commit himself to Christ. See, it comes right back to God sovereignly working in the hearts of sinners to impart new life and obedient faith. Romans 3.10 says this, there's none righteous, not even one. There's not one who understands. There is none who seek after God. Isaiah 53.6, but all of us have like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. John chapter 3, verse 19 and 20, it says, At this is the judgment that the light comes, is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. See, none of us are naturally inclined toward the gospel. That's just not true. Sinners do not seek after God. Because salvation is all of God. It's all of grace. There's not any good inclination in our hearts to want to do the right thing. And because of that, that's why Ephesians 2, 8, 9, no one, no one can boast because of it. It's by grace. And this means that whenever we see a man like the Ethiopian eunuch who's seeking God by traveling to Jerusalem and by reading God's word, God is already at work in his heart drawing him to Christ. God graciously imparted new life to this man when he heard Philip present the gospel. And I cannot believe that there's people, that there's not people out there that we brush paths with every day But because we're not paying attention, because we're not being obedient to the Lord, because we're focused on too many other things, we're missing opportunities that God wants to give us just like this. To see people come to Christ. Not because of who we are, not because of of what we're saying to them or whatever, but because he's working and he wants to use his people in the process of evangelism. It's a uh, huge endeavor we're called to. And sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that evangelism is selling Christianity. That's what we do. And somehow we're, we're a sales force. It's not that at all. A better way to describe it, you're not God's salesperson. You're his reporter. You're his reporter. It's not your job to close the deal. It's your job to tell the story, to report what God has done through Jesus Christ in your life and in the life of others. Just, just tell his story. Tell your story and the impact that God has made. Some of you may recognize this hymn. I just want to read it for us before we close says, I will sing the wondrous story of Christ who died for me, how he left his home in glory for the cross of Calvary. Yes, I'll sing the wondrous story of the Christ who died for me. Sing it with the saints in glory gathered by the crystal sea. 
I was lost, but Jesus found me, found the sheep that went astray, threw his loving arms around me, drew me back into his way. Yes, I'll sing the wondrous story of the Christ who died for me. Sing it with the saints in glory gathered by the crystal, crystal sea. Days of darkness still come o'er me. Sorrow's path I often tread, but his presence still is with me. By his guiding hand I'm led. Yes, I'll sing the wondrous story of the Christ who died for me. Sing it with the saints in glory gathered by the crystal sea. Father, we just thank you for your word today. We thank you for this task that you have called us to as a church in this lost and dying world, that we have a gospel that can go out and transform the lives of those around us. Lord, I am so, so very thankful that evangelism depends on a sovereign God working through our obedience. It's not all on us. If it would be, we'd be hopeless. I'm reminded of the words of Charles Spurgeon. Every Sunday, or every time, actually, he would preach. As he climbed the tall stairs into his pulpit, he would be muttering to himself, I believe in the Holy Ghost. I believe in the Holy Ghost. I believe in the Holy Ghost. He wrote this, The gospel is preached in the ears of all. It only comes with power to some. The power that is in the gospel does not lie in the eloquence of a preacher. Otherwise, men would be converters of souls. Nor does it lie in the preacher's learning. Otherwise, it would consist of the wisdom of men. We might preach till our tongues rotted. Till we should exhaust our lungs and die. But never a soul would be converted unless there were mysterious power going with it. The Holy Ghost changes the will of men. Oh, sirs, we might as well preach to stone walls as to preach to humanity, unless the Holy Spirit be with the word to give it power and to convert the soul. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have truly given us a word that has power to convert the soul. And Lord, we pray today that as we leave this place, that we would recognize ourselves as your (coughs) disciples going out into this lost and dying world, not with a hopeless message, not with an unforgiving message, but a message filled with love and filled with forgiveness and filled with grace to a lost and dying world who has yet to find an answer for the questions they have. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be sensitive to those around us, that we would be led by your Spirit, that we would make it a matter of prayer in our own personal spiritual lives to be and do the work of evangelists, that you would have us to share our testimonies. If we don't have a testimony, I pray that we would sit down and write one out. If we need help, we would ask for someone. If you know Christ, you have a testimony. Maybe you haven't trusted Christ yet. That's his continuing work in your heart. And we pray that he would draw your heart to his as only he can. Through the power of the spirit, through the power of your word. We ask these things. Give us a good day as we spend it with family and friends. Pray that you would just bless our time. Keep us safe and just bless our fellowship afterwards. In Jesus' name, amen.